Hello, I'm Ryan Beasy. Welcome to the Westminster Standard Podcast. Public worship is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. Public worship is the primary means of discipleship in the life of the church. And a crucial element of public worship is the singing of praises to God by his people. Sung praise is a vital component, therefore, of Christian discipleship. Now, there are many approaches guiding the singing that takes place in worship. For some, the songs help to create an atmosphere to set the mood of the service in preparation for an address. Others, uh, the songs or the music itself is to make the people feel the presence of God. But can music do this? Should music be deployed for those ends? Music is indeed a powerful instrument for good. Martin Luther reportedly said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. Well, understandably then, because of its importance, few things are more controversial in the church than what is sung as part of public worship. Well, my guest today has published a book along with one of his colleagues from Grove City College addressing uh, the core of many congregational disputes and sources of disunity namely congregational singing. And his arguments suggest to me that since the Bible gives us principles to govern our singing together, if we would allow those principles of Scripture to guide us, the disputes and disagreements and even arguments over church music, uh, and particularly the sung praises of the congregation, would largely fall to the wayside and we could walk together manifesting greater unity in the kingdom of God. And this is reasonable. If we would attend more closely to the teaching of Scripture and the principles contained in the Scripture, we could see the church enriched by more vibrant praises together in worship that reflects more carefully on the biblical purpose of singing. And so let me welcome Dr. Paul Munson. Uh, he is a ruling elder and a professor of music at Grove City College, as well as teaching elder Sean Morris, who is an alumnus of Grove City College, and most notably married to Sarah Morris, one half of the Presby Girls. Thank you for joining, gentlemen. Thank you. It's, I'm really glad to be here. Glad well, to be uh, here, Ryan, and glad to be with uh, among three Grove City aficionados, no less. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame Sarah's not with us. That would have been a lot of fun. Oh, it would have been. I know it. <laughs> she she wasn't available. Otherwise, um, you know. <laughs> so so we went with Sean. That's right. That's right. I, I had you know I had her music in music history back in the day, and have many fond memories of that. I'm sure. Well, Professor Munson, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself since you're, uh, this is your first time on the podcast. Tell us about your family. How did you come to the Reformed faith as well as your professional and ministry background? Yes, I am married to uh, a, a girl who grew up in the CRC, Betsy, and uh, we have five kids. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, we attended a, a rural and evangelical congregation of the mainline United PCUSA. Uh, it, there was nothing particularly reformed about it. Uh, and, and I was not a believer until I got to college. Ryan, I came to faith in a Lutheran church. And, uh, and, uh, but, but my convictions about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture gradually drew me more and more toward reformed writing, reformed exposition. And in 1997... Betsy and I joined 
the PCA church in Jackson, Tennessee. And uh, we've been in the PCA ever since. Who was the pastor there in 97? Chris O'Brien. So oh, okay. he's, he's currently a pastor of Fairfield PCA in New Jersey. Okay. I uh, think but, one of my predecessors was in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, didn't know if he was there in 97. Apparently not. <laughs> and, uh, and we've been, you know, ordinary means of grace, Presbyterians, as you might say, ever, ever since. I, I served as a ruling elder for 10 years here in Grove City. Uh, but in 2020, we moved to Harrisburg, largely so that my two youngest children could attend uh, the classical Christian school there. And so logistically, it, it became impossible to maintain my duties there. Now, I, I, I aspire someday, God willing, to serve in that way again. We are members now of um, Carlisle Reformed Presbyterian Church, PCA. And Matt Purdy's the, the the senior pastor there, and the Lord has has used his ministry and that fellowship there um, to profoundly bless us. It's it's really been wonderful. I'm I am so thankful for the PCA. Uh, all my adult children attend PCA churches, and uh, I just can't express how 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 grateful I am. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed, we we love the PCA. Um, so you are a professor of music yes. at Grove City College, and yes. so you teach... Um... I have the best job anyone could ever have. <laughs> it's wonderful. I, 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 I help young people think about how to use their leisure well. We mm. talk about joy and, and God's glory and general revelation, and, and I, I get skeptical football players to enjoy Beethoven, and it's just a blast. Indeed, I remember. I remember. I mean, that, that one of the, that was one of the few classes I was um, in uh, where I think your final lecture um, there was a, a standing ovation. I, I that may have oh. only happened once or twice in my whole time as a student at uh, at Grove City College. But uh, you were well appreciated by uh, by the students and still are. Um, well, so let's. Uh, get into our, our topic uh, today, which is reform worship and especially uh, congregational singing. Now, Professor Munson, could you go over, what are some of the distinctives of reformed worship as you would understand it as an, as an elder in the church? Yes, so in, in a reformed understanding of worship, we don't have to generate a sense of God's presence because he, he's there and we can... Uh, behold his glory in his word and in sacrament. And it, and it doesn't depend on us to whip up some kind of sensation for it to be, to be worship. It's, it's, uh, it's us coming by faith before the Lord and, and our worship being acceptable to him through the righteousness of Christ and, and not our own. And, uh, and in particular, our worship is informed by the Bible's own understanding of the second commandment, that, that God is transcendent, as, um, as uh, Carlton Wynn said on your program recently, right? That, that God is the creator and we are creatures, just creatures. The only way we could know God is if he revealed himself which of course he graciously does through what he has said and what he has done. And so our job is to think about him 
in the ways he has revealed and only in the ways he has revealed. We are to worship him only in the ways that he has revealed. God cares so much for his corporate worship that he actually tells us what its elements are. And one of those elements is singing. Mm. And, um, and while God leaves the forms and circumstances of our singing in the assembly up to us to figure out through Christian wisdom. He does give us pretty thorough principles, a complete set of principles for making those decisions in the Bible. And I, I think that those principles could be better understood, and I think it would it would help a lot. Yes, yeah. One of the things that you say in your uh, book is that there can be no doubt Zwingli notwithstanding, that the Bible directs us to include singing as an element of worship and provides many models for its content. It does not, however, prescribe particular forms and circumstances, but provides general principles uh, for determining these. So what are are some of those general principles uh, that you would uh, articulate? I think uh, that's much of what you say in your your book. Yeah, yeah. So... The, the most uh, thorough, the most sustained teaching about church music in the Bible is found in those wonderfully parallel letters that Paul wrote, one to Colossae and one to Ephesus. So uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, there's Colossians 3.16 on the screen there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And uh, when you read the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, it says essentially the same thing, uh, that with each element in the Colossians 3 passage having its equivalent in the Ephesians 5 passage. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Mm. So those two passages really are pretty comprehensive. They they tell us uh, why we sing in church. They tell us what to sing in church. They tell us to whom we sing, and they tell us how to sing. So why, what, who, how. Uh, the, the why is so that the word of Christ will dwell in us richly, so that, the, so that we will be filled with the Spirit. And that refers to the word of God. Right? The, the word of Christ is almost certainly Paul's way of saying what elsewhere in his letters he calls the the word of God. Uh, In this case, because of the situation in Colossae, he says the word of Christ. But the word of Christ is more than just what what, what Christ spoke when he walked this earth. It's, It's the whole of the scriptures, which, as we know, speaks to him and and the promise of of the Messiah. And the, the grammar of these two passages with, with an, they, they both passages has an imperative verb, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
and be filled with the spirit, followed by a series of, of participles. And those participles tell us everything else. We, we know that we, what we're doing is communicating. The reason we um, sing in church is to say something to someone. As it says in the Ephesians passage, we address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the parallel passage in Colossians 3 says, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, in the ESV, the Greek syntax is maybe not quite as clear as it is in the Ephesians 5 passage, but most of the commentaries indicate that the, the teaching and the admonishing in Colossians 3 goes with the participle singing. So the, 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 the most straightforward reading of the word order in the syntax in Colossians 3.16 would go something like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, um, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I messed it up, but with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Um, and you, you give this helpful diagram in your book, yes. which is which is also available as as a website for free. So yeah. if um, if you don't have a copy, and by the way, if you would uh, share this uh, episode on social media and tag the Westminster Standard Podcast, uh, you will be entered in uh, for an opportunity to win a copy of of this book. But what is the website? It's kongsing.org. Is that right? Right. So the first the first syllables in the words congregational. And singing, kongsing.org. Yeah, it's okay. it's it's um, something that a colleague and I wrote about about a decade ago. We put it up in 2013, and we meant it to be a like a one-stop shop for people who are interested in traditional Protestant singing and want to figure out how to, how to do it better. But but back to those principles. Right? Yes. Yes. So we. So we, what, what we're doing is we're communicating to one another. We're saying something to somebody, to other congregants, to God, addressing one another, teaching and admonishing one another, or, or expressing gratitude to God so that the word of God will dwell in us richly. And, and, um, and, and we do it sincerely. That's what the um, in your hearts uh, refers to. And with those four principles, I think we have a lot to go on in deciding how to worship mm, through song. Indeed. Yes, yes. And now the uh, what we are to do is to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, how do you understand those? Sean, how have those been historically understood? How do we need to understand uh, those those three or four words there. Yeah, so there, this is something of an in-house debate uh, amongst some of the uh, different streams in the Reformed world, if, if you like. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. For instance, there's an article out there by uh, Dr. Nick Needham, I believe, and I forget the, the title of the article, but it has to do with how the word psalms 
how psalm was understood even around the time of the Westminster Divines, because you'll have some folks making the case that when the Westminster Confession or the Directory for Public Worship uh, utilizes the word psalm, they mean narrowly the 150 canonical psalms, and, and those are the only things uh, which are to be sung in public corporate worship. Well, Dr. Needham and others have made the case that even as early as the uh, 16th, 17th and 16th century, the word psalm had a broader sort of liturgical understanding uh, beyond those narrow canonical psalms, such that what we might call hymns were already in view and being employed uh, in corporate and even reformed worship. And I don't intend to settle that debate here uh, this afternoon, but such, such as that to say you, you will have uh, some wings of the Reformed world, such as our friends in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America coming out of that classic uh, covenanter tradition, they will argue that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, are referring to different kinds of the 150 canonical psalms. Uh, they will say, if you read through the Psalter, there are those uh, superscriptions in a number of the psalms where it'll say, a psalm of David, a song of the sons of Korah, a hymn it's, and they will say, therefore, these are examples that Paul is using uh, to give reference to the 150 canonical psalms. So, not to over, not to be overly simplistic, uh, those folks might say, Paul means there, sing psalms, psalms, and psalms, various kinds of psalms, sing from the 150 canonical psalms in your corporate worship. Others have understood, uh, even because of the way the words hymnos and uh and I, my, my Greek and even my Latin is failing me here now, but hymns and spiritual songs were already being utilized uh, broadly in Greek in the day of the New Testament to mean things beyond the 150 canonical psalms, such that the Apostle Paul is saying, there are psalms, those 150 canonical psalms, you should sing those in corporate worship. There are hymns of praise to Christ, you should sing those in corporate worship. And there are spiritual songs, you should sing those in corporate worship uh, as you give glory to God in your sung praises. So in about two and a half minutes, I've tried to uh, give a brief overview of, you know, 500 years of internal in-house reform <laughs> debate, but there's the lay of the land as you might, yeah. as you might take it. Yes, and in your book, Professor Munson, you not only uh, deal with, with those in the chapter, but you have an appendix on uh, the Psalter and uh, give some background there. Could you yeah. uh, summarize that for us? Yeah, so I think the word psalm in uh, the New Testament almost certainly refers to the book of Psalms. It, it, the word really doesn't appear outside of uh, Jewish and Christian Greek writings. And, and the Septuagint use of the word for the book of Psalms almost certainly means that that's what Paul has in mind. The other two nouns, however, are just the two most common words for singing in the Greco world. And, and so it, it's, it's very hard to, um, I find the, the, the exclusive psalmist argument that those refer to um, genres of psalms, I find that hard, hard to, uh, to, to believe, um, especially, especially since those words, hymnos and odos are, are not used consistently in translating the Hebrew words in the Septuagint. So the question I asked in my book was, I, I wonder what the exclusive psalmist would think Paul would have said if it was Paul's intention that uh, that we not sing only psalms. But 
the I think most likely that list of three nouns is just a, a, a sort of a, a, a common literary device in the Bible to ex, uh, emphasize something where you get a list of synonyms like signs, wonders, and miracles, or that that kind of thing. Right, right, and um, you know what the word uh, psalm doesn't it mean a song sung to a stringed instrument. Well, the, the root word, salo, the verb uh, that is used outside of Christian and Jewish writings, refers to playing a stringed instrument. So the, the, the translators of the Septuagint were probably thinking about how music in the temple was accompanied by instruments when they essentially maybe coined the term psalm. Mm. But that's speculative. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, thank you for for that. So you um, you articulate these four principles for church music, and um, and that that forms the basis of the outline for uh, your book. The church music should function primarily as a means by which congregates communicate to God and to each other. Second, the singing congregate should communicate to God and to fellow congregates the message, wording, and aesthetic values of Scripture, which we'll explore later, but that's an important point that you make, that the Scripture has aesthetic values. You know, we're, uh, we're told today that you know, everything is, is relative, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, um, Scripture has an aesthetic, and that's, that's something we have to reckon with. Third, our principal consideration in designing the form of church music should be its communicative function, namely its potential as a medium for congregants to lift their voices in praise to God and in exhortation of one another. And then fourth, congregations, congregants should be encouraged to mean what they sing. Uh, a helpful summary, and you know, it, I think you, you say in there that you know, it, when we are fighting over church music, it's often because we haven't understood those principles. Have you, have you found that to be the case in your ministry as, as an elder, Sean, or uh, Professor Munson? I'll, the, I'll go the worship and I'll, just, I'll, I'll say briefly. Yeah, I, I I think that at least in my limited life experience, whether it's in the Reformed world or in the slightly broader evangelical world, there's not there hasn't been a disagreement as to again at least in my life experience. I know that's not the case everywhere. Whether there should be congregational singing, everyone seems to agree that there should be singing. Uh, the argument has largely centered around what I think are stylistic preferences, although here we are sitting here in the year 2023, in the year of our Lord, and the sort of worship wars of modern versus traditional or contemporary versus traditional, even that um, articulation or framing of the debate feels sort of stale and tired, um, at least from where I sit. Maybe that's not the case in other wings of the church, in that when I was a, a college student in 2007, 2008, 2009, that was a very live fire sort of debate, and there were church splits happening, and in some cases you'd have uh, churches fracturing along these lines saying, well, this this part of the congregation that wants to worship traditionally, they'll meet at 8.30 a.m., and this part of the congregation that wants to meet it, or to worship more in a contemporary fashion, well, they'll meet at 11 a.m., so we'll have two services, and thus creating functionally two different congregations in order to, in order to, uh, cater to those those whims that was more of a live fire uh thing that was happening 20 years ago it, it, from my seat anyway that feels more stale and tired that i'm not sure how much that debate is still raging i'm sure it is in some quarters of the church 
I think in some arenas, they've just given up the fight and have thrown in the towel and have gone to that more contemporary model and aren't giving much thought to the more traditional model. Uh, I think in other, in other wings of the church, that that fight has, uh, that scuffle or kerfuffle has passed over and a more traditional model of congregational singing uh, and, and musical elements of worship have been maintained, uh, maybe with some bruises in the process over 20, 25 years. Um, but then again, that's just my anecdotal experience, and I could be wrong entirely. Yeah. What about you, Professor, at, at the Academy? You, you <laughs> tend to see a, maybe a wider view of culture. Yeah. yeah. No, most of my students uh, have never sung hymns ever, really. It's, it's just a foreign thing for most of them. Mm. I think... When historians look back on the 20th century, I think that they will say that one of the defining developments of church history was the universal adoption of a charismatic theology of worship. Mm. I think we're all charismatics now. And the thing is, we don't even know it Protestants don't even know that they have a fundamentally different understanding of what worship is than their forebears in the faith did just a century ago. And so we don't talk about it because we don't even know it's happened. Yeah. And, and, we, and we argue about style and preference, but it's not really preferences that drive the, the argument. It's, it's that we have different ideas of what worship is. Mm. Most Protestants today think of worship as a feeling. Mm. We, we know God is present and we know God is blessing us when we feel a certain way. And it's the music that makes us feel that way. Mm. Whereas historically, Protestants understood that the music was just a, just a means to, to an end. It was a tool. It was, it, it was there to help us to communicate the word of God to one another and back to God and even to ourselves in self-exhortation. It was about communication. And that was a very emotional thing, but it, but it wasn't the music that was generating the emotion. The music helped us to communicate the truth. And the more clearly it communicated the truth, the more the truth moved us, mm. which leads, ironically, I think, to a much more robust emotional experience in worship. I think traditional Protestant singing is more emotional than contemporary Protestant singing, where we're emoting over music rather than truth. Mm. Yeah, you make you make that point very well in in your book. When a song has an emotional context, it communicates something that flows from or leads to an emotion. When a song is essentially emotional, its poetic and musical form is designed to communicate emotion itself. Yeah, and, and when the music is designed to communicate emotion, to communicate emotion itself, then God's word just gets in the way. Right. It distracts. Right. It's it's it 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 keeps us from focusing on that sensation. And that's why again and again Protestants today are attracted to songs that have vague words and repetitive mm. words, because that helps them to focus on the feeling that's being generated by the music. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's amazing how many reformed people think this way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, 
I, I guess I can understand why someone like, I don't know, am I allowed to name people? Okay, uh, it, I guess it makes sense that, um, you know, someone like Bob Coughlin talks that mm -hmm. way because in the sovereign grace tradition, they're openly influenced by charismatic thinking. Uh, what's more surprising is when someone like John Frame talks that way. Mm. And I, I think it's just, we've been influenced mm. without even knowing it. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and I think that's a really helpful point you make, Dr. Munson, is that we, and I say we broadly, think that the argument is merely over something superficial like stylistic preferences. But really, it's a deeper disagreement about a theology of worship or a theology of singing. But we don't even, in most cases, realize that that's what we're disagreeing about. Yeah. You uh, you say earlier, uh, to evaluate music on the basis of the modern aesthetics values uh, would be unbiblical, because the Bible assigns different purpose to church music to provide the vehicle by which congregants can communicate to God and one another. And so it seems like before we even get to do I like traditional or do I want to go to the contemporary service or the jazz service? We need we need to figure out what is congregational singing for. Yes. To determine is traditional contemporary jazz or whatever the the new thing. I mean jazz is so what 2010s. <laughs> That's right. Uh the jazz service is is, is passé now I I'm sure. Uh, is that an appropriate medium for the message uh of of what is to be communicated in our sung praises. So this isn't just, you know, a bunch of uh, curmudgeons thinking, well, we need, we need to sing uh, the old hymns. No. You know, the, this is, what's the purpose of singing, right? Right. This is not a decision we have to make between the old and the new. It's a decision we have to make based upon the congregational versus the, 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 the music that, uh, that, induces a certain state of mind mm -hmm. the, yes. the, so, so in traditional congregational singing traditional protestant congregational singing you don't need a leader up front because the impulse for it is coming from the congregants the people in the congregation have something to say and it doesn't matter whether they're a good singer or not it, it what matters is that they're sincere and they have something to say to one another and Protestant church music evolved the way it did to facilitate that hmm. different musics have different forms because they have different purposes. A lullaby sounds the way a lullaby does because it has the purpose of pacifying a baby. A military march has the form it has because it has the purpose of, 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 uh, you know, stepping at the same time exactly mm -hmm. that's right and and in and emboldening the soldiers and and pro traditional protestant congregational singing sounded the way it did because it was the best instrument for helping ordinary people people of ordinary literary and musical abilities and sensibilities to communicate the word of god to one another mm. and back to god and it's not that that music was just the popular music of the day. It wasn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Protestant church music never sounded like the music of the day because it had a different purpose. Right. And both right. Kelvin and Luther are on record as saying that. Yeah, and, and you know, I think you know the the fact that German has a 
a musical form of bar form is probably why people think he used you know the music of the tavern or the pub in the church. But no, it, it wasn't that. He was writing his own, you know, Ein Feste Borg is not a song that they were singing down at uh, Wilhelm's Tavern on, uh, on First Strasse no, or whatever it was. No. <laughs> no, God in his providence provided in Martin Luther, not just a great theologian, not just a great polemicist and pastor, Martin Luther was an accomplished poet and musician. Hmm. He was an excellent lute player. He had an excellent tenor voice and he was a good composer. And the tunes he wrote were designed so that ordinary people could sing God's word to one another. Yes. Well, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the message. Then um, we talked about it needs to be communicating to one another and to God. But now uh, the message, which uh, in your in, in your work, our singing in the assembly should be full of the inspired word of God. The word must dwell in us. And then you, you quote from Psalm 119, My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Spirit-filled singing, like spirit-filled preaching and spirit-filled prayer, proclaims biblical truths in a manner consistent with the biblical models. Yeah. And then you do something in, in your book, which I think is, is remarkable. You look at one of the um, most common uh, songs uh, that was sung in 2008, I think, by the... Uh, you, you, so you're not just picking on one, you're, you're saying this is a common, uh, the number one CCLI uh, used, requested, yeah. um, what is it, Chris Tomlin's uh, How Great Is Our God, and here are our lyrics from the Google machine. Um, and and, and you, you do what is r- remarkable, and in the sense that is worthy of study, is you ask the questions, Right. The splendor of a king clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. Why? Right. Why? Um, and and I, I, I thought it was such a, an important paradigm shift uh, for me that why? You know, our, our singing should answer that question. And then when you consider the Psalter, mm-hmm. the Psalter always is answering that question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout... Um, uh, Let's see, you quote again from uh, Michael Horton. Why should all the earth rejoice? Uh, Michael Horton has written about this tendency in postmodern hymnody. Vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads to making our own praise the object. Praise, therefore, becomes an end in itself, and we are caught up in our own worship experience rather than in the God whose character and acts are the only proper focus. Um. You know, and I wonder what the correlation is between the loss of singing the psalms in, in corporate worship, not that they should be the only things that we sing, uh, but the loss of psalm singing has led to this. You, know, you think, yeah. at least, I immediately thought of Psalm 95 when I read this. Um, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So, you know, you have a little bit of, you know, he's the rock of our salvation, but basically that's a call to worship. But then the next four verses are the why. (laughs) Because he's a great king and a great king above all gods. His hands to the depths of the sea, the heights of the mountains, he made it. His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So the idea of prostrating before this this great king um, because of who he is and what he has done. So that's something that 
I just think it's so missing from from modern worship. You know, it's it's reflected. Uh, you know, th- their cases are legion, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. So you know, often the response when you and I point this out is people will say, "Well, we just need to write songs with better words." But I think what that misses is that there's a reason people are attracted to vague lyrics. Mm. And, and that's because it helps them to do what you're trying to do in charismatic worship. Whereas the Psalms just get in the way. They're, and it's not just that the Psalms are clearer than, uh, than the lyrics of popular contemporary singing in church. There's also a train of thought, Ryan, as you pointed out, right? The, the one idea leads to the next and, and, and it builds to a conclusion. And that's not happening. Um, and, uh, and, and the songs we need to sing in church, uh, if, if they're not actual translations from the scripture, need to have that same clarity and, and the developing of a biblical train of thought uh, even if it's more of systematic theology or biblical theology as opposed to an actual translation of the Bible. Hmm. Yeah, which we don't want to send the message that we are saying you can only sing the Psalter. No. But the Psalter does provide, as you, as you mentioned a number of times in your book, the biblical model that our singing should be uh, robustly biblical. All of our worship should be robustly biblical, especially the singing, because it's so foreign to us uh, now. You know, the, the idea of a group of people getting together singing is is strange in the 21st yeah. century. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, up until World War II, the armies, they sang together because if they wanted music. That was what they had. <laughs> they had each other. They had to make Whereas, it themselves. Yes, yes. And But then after the advent of the radio, other people make the music for us. So that's, that's the real challenge for, for pastors, is how do you get ordinary people to treat music as interpersonal communication when mm. they don't sing in the rest of their life? Luther and Calvin, they just had to get people who weren't used to singing in church to sing in church. Yes. But they were singing to one another all the time in the rest that's of right. their life because music was a, was, was a folk culture. They were yes. always singing to one another. That was hard enough. The task is even harder today. And I think that's part of what motivates us to have the leader up front. But, but what that inevitably does when you have the leader up front is it kills the congregational element because the leader up front is doing the work. And, mm. and, and I don't have to sing. I can sing along, but nobody's ever thinking about communicating to the person in the next pew when there's a praise team up front. Or, or an overbearing choir, right? Because this isn't or, just about... Or a loud organ or, or, mm. or, or anything that yeah. takes the, the congregation's agency away. Yes. So in your, in your book, you, uh, you talk about the triple audience in Christian worship, and you allude to the Psalms about this. The psalmists move fluidly back and forth between addressing him referring to him in the third person and between addressing him and addressing fellow creatures. So not even just humans, right? The, the psalmists are, are, are speaking to uh, the, the heavenly beings as well. Yes. Uh, so 
uh, how does this, if we understand the audience of our singing properly, ourselves, our neighbor, and God, how does that inform what is to be sung? Yeah, so if, if, if we're actually saying something to somebody that we're going to be drawn to songs that actually communicate. And um, it's apparent when you observe most Protestant singing today that nobody's really communicating, hmm. that you, no, nobody talks that way to another person. Whether, if you think God is a king, you're certainly not going to talk that way to him. But even if you think God is your your buddy, you don't talk that way to your buddy. The 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 vagueness and the repetitiveness is the best evidence of all that they have a different theology of worship. Hmm. So um what is then the history of congregational singing? You give a, a little overview in your book, you know, in the patristic age, and then the Middle Ages, the Reformation, early modern period, and then it seems yeah. to be the postmodern period goes back to uh, the the Middle Ages uh, right. as far as what worship looks like. Exactly. Could you give us a, an overview, and, and Sean, jump in at any time. I know you, you're getting a PhD in something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, help me out, Sean. The... the um... When, when Paul says uh, that, that we are to teach and admonish one another, that we're to address one another, almost certainly what's happening there is that individual members of the congregation are reciting or intoning a prose translation of the book of Psalms. Uh, it, they're taking turns, addressing one another. It's, it's, I, I hate to say it, but it's probably more like what you and I think of as special music. It's still everybody in the congregation addressing one another. We, we think of uh, what, what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a psalm. And, uh, and, and that's because there really wasn't a way for a whole bunch of ordinary people to sing together at the same time. Now that changes briefly at the end of the fourth century AD when Ambrose comes up with the ingenious idea of fighting Arianism with metrical strophic poetry. I, I cannot underscore the importance of that enough because metrical strophic poetry allows ordinary people to sing at the same time which is something the church had never had before. And when you read Augustine's descriptions of the singing in Milan, there's a reason he was so moved because now you have an even better fulfillment of Paul's command, the, the apostolic command, because now everyone's addressing one another all at the same time. Now that was lost, that was lost very quickly. Uh, and they never had it in the Eastern churches. The, the Council of Laodicea banned congregational singing, and they lost it very quickly in the West. And in the Middle Ages, you have the professionals singing in church, right? the monks, the choirs. And the challenge for Luther and Kelvin was to get ordinary people to sing together. And to do that, they had to come up with 
uh, a whole new repertoire and a whole new way of thinking about music. And they did. You know, Luther spent a lot of effort creating this repertoire, getting poets and, and composers to write tunes that could serve this purpose. Kelvin did too. And it, it, it took a long time, actually. Some congregations figured it out pretty quickly, but others it took generations. But by the 1700s, what you and I think of as congregational singing was a universal uh, part of the Protestant experience and Protestant worship. Now in the 20th century, now we have, we have a second shift. So if there was a shift at the time of the Reformation from our taking turns to fulfill Paul's command to a truly congregational idiom where we all sing at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, in the 20th century, with prominent leadership up front, what happens is we, we now sing along. And what that does, as I said earlier, is it, it suppresses any sense we might have that, that I have something to say to that, that, that guy in front of me and that that little kid behind me has something to say to me, uh, much less that I have something to say to God because mm. it's somebody else's song. It's not mine. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's, it's medieval is what it is. Um, yeah. Bob Godfrey, in a recent lecture at the uh, Reformation Worship Conference, which go, goes over that, that arc from the, when Protestant worship became Pentecostal. And yeah. uh, um, somehow that was related to Machen, but, but uh, we, we weren't exactly sure. <laughs> he, uh, he, he made that, uh, that point. Uh, but that's, I think, an important thing to understand uh, before we can even begin to reform worship and, and music in, in a congregation, is that when you have these professionals up front doing all the heavy lifting, whether it's a praise band or an overpowering choir, you've returned to a medieval principle of, of worship. Exactly. Something that is not Protestant, not historical at all. And uh, so this isn't just about, again, being curmudgeonly and being old-fashioned. Old, old this is what is suitable for the purpose of church music. Um, so how then did that Protestant uh, hymnody develop uh, to suit that particular uh, purpose? You, you say in, in your book, again, Protestant churches gradually developed a musical style ideally suited to congregational singing, which happened to be quite different from the folk songs, folk dances, and urban popular music that congregants enjoyed in other contexts. This is how, how Calvin understood the Bible's call to sing a new song. The new life we have in Christ brings with it new purposes, which require forms unlike those we have in uh, the common world. And so, uh, again, debunking that view that, well, Calvin and, and Luther especially just took the folk songs and set new lyrics to it. So how did how did they go about doing that? Yeah, well, it, uh, we we owe a lot to Luther, don't we? He he understood God was was really gracious to give us him because he had the musical skill to envision a music that could serve this purpose. And uh, so what so what you have you, know, you take you take a hymnal. And you have a variety of styles, don't you? 
You have songs, you have, you have tunes from different eras. And yet what all those tunes have in common is that they're simple enough that ordinary people can learn them and, and, and they are, and yet for all their simplicity, they, they have a musical integrity with, with patterns that, that make sense with ideas that develop from phrase to phrase and, and arrive at goals in ways that parallel the train of thought in, in the poem. And, and these tunes typically have a limited range. The rhythms are typically pretty simple. The phrases are a certain length that, that ordinary people can sustain. The, the, temple is, the tempo is such that ordinary people who might not be very good readers can, can, can still keep up and, and actually understand what they're saying and mean it, especially if, if the poem is rich enough as poetry and as theology, if it's if it's scripturally rich enough to sing your whole life long, then it's worth it to memorize. And as Kelvin said, then it's so much easier to sing from your heart if if you know the song by heart. If you can just not even worry about taking out the hymnal. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, and so so, that- so the, the, the this style of singing is not just borrowed from somewhere else in the world. It it's a distinctly Protestant thing that we ought to be good stewards of. Mm. And that raises a, a number of, of points. When I was in uh, seminary, you know, we, we took a church music course, um, uh, but not, not, not perhaps, um, you know, as thorough as one might at an undergrad institution with a music department. Uh, and, and we were taught how to change the tune for a different text, you know, if it's got an unfamiliar tune, you can set it to a, you can set it to Duke Street or Asmund or something like that. Um, but I recall uh, that, that you caution against that because that I inhibits do. the text dwelling richly. If you have five different texts that are set to Duke Street, you're not really sure which which way to do which way to go when you get to the end of a stanza. Yeah. So the the temptation to use a familiar tune to make it easier for a congregation to sing an unfamiliar text, I, I, I get that because you want people to mean what they're singing and, and it's gonna be so much easier for them to mean what they're singing if they're not struggling with the tune. But that's a short-term gain that comes at the expense of something that's really important in the long-term. And that is the link in people's memory between a tune and a text that has proven over and over again really helpful for most people, enabling them to understand what they're saying and to mean what they're saying. If if we promiscuously use the same tune for multiple texts, uh, it it undermines that mnemonic connection, that, that connection in the memory. And so some of that is inevitable. We have more texts that we that we want to sing than good tunes, um, but uh, I, I discourage it as much as possible. It's ideally we would have a different tune for every text we sing. Yeah, mm. and it's interesting. This is not to make a theological argument. It's just a, a fascinating anecdote. That reality helped pave the way 
for eventual hymnody and certainly Isaac Watts's uh, hymnody, the popularity of it in parts of Scotland. Being that I, I learned this in doing my master's research, there were rural congregations in the Church of Scotland where even as they were committed to only singing the 150 canonical psalms, their leaders would only use the same seven or eight tunes over and over and over again for all That's those right. 150 psalms. That's right. And the people, the congregants, were so tired of it. They were so frustrated with that. They said, please, we're so sick of whatever this tune is. We're so sick of singing Dundee every week. Would you please give us something else to work with? And so when they heard Isaac Watts and some of his hymn tunes, they just gravitated towards that right away, and they were so uh, warmly welcomed. I mean, so for for whatever that's worth, not to make a theological argument, but even even still, that's uh, that, that's a reality that played out in paving the way to Hymnody's population and eventual acceptance in the Church of Scotland. On a recent episode of, of PresbyCast, Sean, you may have been on this episode, uh, they had one of the editors of the new Trinity Psalter hymnal on, uh, and, and he was discussing uh, Austria and how in the earlier um, Dutch hymnal, uh, they they had to stray away from using Austria because there were so many people who had survived the German occupation mm. of the Netherlands and then emigrated to the United States or Canada. Now, this is the tune we normally use for glorious things of the right. unspoken. Right, but it, right. But it was it was used as the national anthem by the Nazis. Yeah. Yes, and so and still was... is is the national anthem of of Germany German. today, and maybe Liechtenstein, but uh... it's a great tune. It's one of the best tunes in 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 the hymn book, um, but yeah, the associations were so painful right. in yes. some places that they they couldn't use it. But right, uh, right. but thankfully we we can today. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's history. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Huh. Mm. It's fantastic. Mm. It is. It is. And but to to the point that music will cause a text to dwell richly with you. And if yes. if the text that's dwelling richly with you is Deutschland, Deutschland über alles and and instead of glorious things of thee are spoken, you can't you can't use that tune. Right. Um, right. But that, that is something that we have to reckon with that music will cause the text to dwell richly with us. Unless we're using, you know, those same five tunes over and over again, and then we're not remembering. So and they used to make, of course, hymnals like that, the split the split psalter. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which I'm sure was was purposeful. Uh, well, let's um, think about. So we are we're in, we're in the 21st century. Yes, and we are not um, opposed to new things. No. Um, but if we're going to do something new, uh, it has to be suited for the purpose. Uh, one of the things you say in in your in your book again, to learn a culture's own music is an admirable thing. But to apply it directly to congregational singing is problematic for the same reason that praise and worship is problematic. Uh, it may not be suited at all to the purpose at hand. And then you uh, note Indian classical music with its highly controlled improvisation and long breath rhythmic structures offers rich rewards to the attentive listener. But try turning that into a congregational uh, idiom and you'll frustrate both the Indian and the Westerner. So it's not that we simply listen to what the what the people are singing in the culture, and then try to write a tune that sounds like that, and then try to put text to it. How ought congregational music be composed, and then a text set to it? Yeah. So I mean, it's it's an understandable 
way of thinking that if, if we want to be worshiping in the vernacular, we, we want people worshiping in their own language, it seems self-evident that they should be singing in musical styles that they're already familiar with, right? Their own, their heart language, so to speak. But the problem with that is that, as we said earlier in the podcast, different musics have been developed and take the, the form that they do because they serve different purposes, right? A lullaby does one thing, a march does a different thing, which is why they sound different. And so if missionaries go to a different culture and try to write hymns in whatever style of music is most popular in that community, it, it may or may not be well suited to congregational singing. What we need um, for to have great new hymns today being written is we need people who really understand the Bible and really understand um, how poetry works. Yes. And, and understand what makes for a great congregational tune. And probably that's going to mean that the poet and the composer are two different people. Right? The, the, reason, the reason the 18th century was, I think, the golden age of English language hymnody is that people like Isaac Watts and John Newton and Charles Wesley brought to the task extraordinary gifts. You know, they, they were all classically educated. They read the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek. They were, they were pastors. They, they knew the hearts of their sheep. And, uh, and, and so they knew how to write really good poetry that was rich in, in biblical language. And, and a biblical train of thought with the same kind of beauty that you get on every page of the Bible. They knew how to do that. And not very many people know how to do that today. And then the people who write the tunes, the, the, the ones who wrote tunes that have survived and have been um, sturdy you know, tools in our, in our singing, they understood what is needed for ordinary people to sing these songs together to one another and to God. They, they understood that Protestants have a musical style all their own. And, and that's an important point, I think, that this has developed over the centuries. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of the things I don't like about uh, a modern hymn is often that it's just not suited for congregational singing. You know, the, the, I, I compare uh, In Christ Alone, which is, which is a very well-loved hymn and, and text, and one of the better modern ones, but you, you think of the tune St. Columba, and if you get the same congregation on the same Sunday, and I think we've done this at First Pres Fort O where I serve, people, the singing of How Sweet and Awesome is the Place sounds so much better, not because the congregation necessarily knows that better, but because it's a, a tune that is better suited for singing together, whereas in Christ alone is, is to, it's capable of being sung together, but it's not necessarily as suitable to that purpose. And, and it's newer, right? So we haven't had the benefit—in Christ alone hasn't survived hundreds of years as a congregational song. 
So I think the history is yeah. helpful there. Yeah, I'm 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 not going to trash in Christ alone. If it was in my hymnal, I would not be upset. Um, but I also think it's good for us to recognize that the reason Keith Getty has been such a, a helpful poet and composer for so many people is not because he understands poetry as well as Isaac Watts, okay? It's, it's not because he understands the musical style of congregational singing as well as Lowell Mason did. It's because he's a good performer. Hmm. And, and we live at a time when people are so insecure about singing and they sing so little. I mean, they might only sing, you know, seven minutes a week in their morning service. That might be the only singing they do other than happy birthday. Right. That's for I mean, years on end. Seriously, and, yeah. And, and so when they listen to recordings during the week, it, it imprints that poem and that tune in their memory, making it easier for them to mean what they're saying on mm. Sunday morning. So, yeah. so I think Keith Getty's poems are not the best poems being written today for the church, but they're the most successful ones in our circles for that reason. And maybe that's, maybe that's inevitable but I, I would love, I would love to have so much congregational singing in our churches in, on Sunday mornings and on Sunday nights and on at Wednesday night prayer meetings and in family worship that we actually have a, a living, vibrant folk culture of ordinary people singing to one another as a form of, of interpersonal communication. And then we can select new texts and new tunes because they're actually the very best ones. Yeah, for our purposes, yeah. that yes. that's that's what I would say. Yes, and you know, I and not to trash that hymn at all. I think, you know, it's it's a fine uh, work. It is, of, and we've sung it, it twice is. in the last month yep. here at, at oh, First Press. So it's it's not it's that I'm hymn. opposed to the Getty, but I think Saint Columba is better. <laughs> and, and but Saint but and and that's because Saint Columba has the advantage of being what is it a two hundred year old tune. Yeah. And and it's survived. Whereas I don't know some of these, uh, what your former colleague would have called, uh, Dr. Conson would have called, uh, paper cup songs, uh, will survive <laughs> un until you know the next week because they're 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 written to be disposable. Now I think in Christ alone probably will uh, because both the poetry yeah. and the music are um, of sufficient quality. But will it be on a scale with Saint Columba or Asman or? Antioch, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, will, will, will it be? But this, I think, we we need to make uh, the point that this isn't when you say traditional Protestant or historic Protestant singing. This isn't just about Eurocentric or Anglocentric worship. No. You know, when I was when I was in seminary, we had a large number of of Korean students who would come to Korea to study at RTS Jackson and then go back to Korea to pastor. And I was in the, the student center, the, the Sam Patterson's porch, I think it was, Sean. That's right. And this, yep. this, this, this group of Korean uh, students came in, and they, were, they went to the piano, and, and they were playing the tune that I know to trust and obey. I don't know what text they were singing, because they were singing in Korean. But uh, they, they were singing this historic Protestant music, because it's well-suited for congregational singing. 
And Rick Phillips has made an argument at, uh, at one of the General Assembly seminars that uh, the regulative principle of worship is actually the least Eurocentric of all philosophies of worship, because what does it require? Bread, wine, Bible, water, a songbook, a Bible. Did we say Bible? Uh, And maybe something for the guy to stand on. So you can have two Bibles. So this this simple congregational singing is not Eurocentric. I I don't think it's not Anglocentric. Certainly, um, I think Calvin would agree of it about it being or would disagree that it's Anglocentric. <laughs> but this this is this is a way to level congregational singing, isn't it? To level worship across different cultures. Right, because we're trying to realize these universal purposes from God's word. These universal mm-hmm. principles. From, God, from God's word. So as the gospel has spread and as indigenous communions, congregations, churches in other parts of the world have, have flourished, they tend to gravitate to the, 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 the same basic style of music with the, the simplicity and the small range and the, the sort of thing that an ordinary group of people could sing together at the same time. Now, where that hasn't happened is where charismaticism has has uh, dominated the the thinking. Mm. Yes, it, it 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 has survived and it's transferred not because of colonialism, to use a very uh, popular word, but because it works. Mm-hmm. Just as just as electricity and indoor plumbing work, and they've been exported throughout the world, so to, I think, you know, a, a Protestant, historic Protestant type of singing work. Another example might be um, No Name, Sine Nomine, which was written at the end of the 19th century, wasn't it? But it doesn't sound end of the 19th century. It doesn't sound modern. It, it just sounds like a hymn, and it's yeah. a good hymn. Mm. Um, so, uh, as we, as we bring it in for a close, anything, uh, either of you would like to add before I, I go to my final question? Well, just, just to emphasize again, what, what you both have already, that you have already stated, but it's, I think it's worth reiterating because so often this conversation gets misunderstood. And I think that all three of us are agreed that this is not a matter of aesthetic elitism. This is not a matter of snobbery or or preferentialism it's not a matter of old versus new it's a matter of suitable versus unsuitable it's a question of form and content both things matter the content is it right and accurate and biblical and theologically orthodox things that we are speaking and singing and is it in a form that is conducive to whole congregational participation to whole congregational singability there might be forms of a song that are perfectly fine to use in other settings, maybe if you're doing a, a music concert on a Saturday evening, but they don't lend themselves to a whole congregational participation in Lord's Day corporate worship. And so that's really what the heart of this discussion is getting at. There's other things, there's other implications and extrapolations, of course, but it's a matter of suitable versus unsuitable and form versus content. And so that's the thing that's worth that's worth reiterating, that I know there will be folks who continue to misunderstand, and they might even listen to this episode and think that it's a matter of of uh, elitism and aesthetic preference and snobbery and cultural preferences and Anglocentrism, but it's really not. That's not uh, what, what is driving 
uh, these considerations. And then the other thing too, and this is something that Dr. Munson has already has already hinted at, but when he was talking about lyricists and composers maybe not necessarily being the same person. I mean, we saw evidence of that even in Calvin's Geneva. Uh, you had men like Beza doing the translation and providing the lyrics, or uh, Clement Moreau. And then on the other hand, you had uh, Gaudemel, and you had Bourgeois providing the, the tune arrangements and the composition, working hand in hand. And I don't have a one-size-all one uh, fix or, or proposal or solution simply to say that I'm incredibly sympathetic to Martin Luther here, where he insisted on musical training in his theological seminaries for men who would be in the ministry, uh, for theologians, for pastors to have musical training and musical sensibilities. I just, we have such a low esteem, I think, or maybe a low appreciation or utilization, a, a low facility, a poor facility in poetry and a poor facility in musicality in our days. And I know the seminaries can't fix everything. I appreciate that. But I just wonder, and I was having a conversation with a PCA colleague uh, on social media even earlier today about is there nothing that can be done even at the level of presbyteries insisting on or stressing better um, English composition and poetic sensibilities being trained at the undergraduate level or music sensibilities being trained at the undergraduate level and then that further theological and pastoral preparation being done at the seminary level because it seems to me that we, we have to start somewhere and so if we're going to have theologians and musical lyricists working hand in hand to continue serving the church and generations to come. Uh, we need to think seriously about that kind of training and facility because we don't have much of it, at least from my corner of the Lord's Vineyard as I look out there. So any thoughts or any considerations that we can give towards better poetic facility, better music facility, and then giving more thoughtful uh, and intentional uh, consideration towards theologians and composers working hand in hand in the service of the church. Uh, we, we ought to be doing that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, a larger and larger percentage of our young men entering the ministry are, are coming with no exposure to traditional Protestant congregational singing. And where are they going to get it? I, I, I don't have the answer to that. I mean, I, I, I'm not a seminary administrator, <laughs> but uh, we need to be thinking about this. Yes, yes. And, and you ask if there's anything to add. I might just add this on another note, that, that just as having prominent leadership before in front of the congregation tends to sap the, the, the congregational nature of the song, screens do too. And, 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 and you know, we, we have a lot... Um, a lot of reasons to encourage our church members to be comfortable with books, okay? Yes. And, and having the entire poem in front of you helps you to see that train of thought, that biblical train of thought that we've been talking about in this po podcast. And, and having the singer able to look back on what he has sung and anticipate what he is going to sing rather than being beholden to the decision of whoever's clicking through the slides promotes congregational agency. So I, I, I would love to take this opportunity to make the case for actual hymn books in people's hands.
Mm. And if I, if I might piggyback off that point, and I know you need to get to your, your closing question, Ryan, but even as Dr. Munson is holding that hymnal, it, it helped, it, to me, it re, reinforces and underscores a previous point that he made that what we're advocating here is actually transcultural. It's not culturally hostage. To, it's, not, it's not hostage in any one particular culture because the church has a culture, and a good evidence of that is by looking through any good hymnal. You can scan through the Trinity hymnal. You can scan through the Trinity Psalter hymnal. And you can find evidence of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ from second century doxologies and Gloria Patres to the lyrics of Ambrose of Milan to the lyrics that Calvin and Bourgeois utilized in Geneva to Charles Wesley to the Psalter, of course, the songbook of the Lord Jesus to even more modern iterations of things like Getty and Town. And you'll find examples of the, of the church across generations and across the cultures, songs of the people of God. It's not beholden to any one culture. The church has a culture, and there's some tangible evidence of it in a good and well-arranged and thoughtful hymnal. Mm. On the on the topic of screens, I was at a, a meeting um, earlier, and uh, they had the, the song lyrics projected up on the screen, and something struck me, and I said, I wanted to say, oh, what, what did we just sing? And I couldn't go back and see what I had just sung because it was gone. Whereas in a hymnal, you can just look up to the, the line up above and, and see right. what you've sung. So I, I do think there is a pragmatic argument to have the hymnal. I know, I know they cost a little bit more, but I think they are something that are worth it's worth investing in, and it frees up that 14-year-old kid who's going to have to be running the slideshow to go sit with his parents. <laughs> anyway, I think it's, it's, worth it. it's worth it for that 14-year-old to be with his family. Um, well, as we close, I, I always like to ask, uh, you know, what, uh, what excites you about the PCA right now? What aspirations do you have for the PCA? What concerns do you have? And I know we've talked about uh, some of them, but uh, more particular, what, what, how, how are you feeling about the PCA uh, right now? Oh, well, as I said at the beginning, my heart overflows with gratitude for what mm. the Lord has done in my life and in the life of my loved ones through PCA congregations. And uh, I'm personally very heartened by developments in the recent General Assemblies of the last two, three years, uh, how, you know, how the revoice was eventually handled and you know, listening to Ryan's chronicling of what happened in Jonesboro, that, that's just really encouraging to me. You know, if I have an aspiration, it, I, I, I'm sure most people listening will laugh and think it's a pipe dream, but I would love to see the PCA someday authorize and support a, a third edition of the Trinity Hymnal, you know, based on the principles, the guiding principles that were used in the first two editions, I think that that could be a, a real blessing to a lot of, a lot of people. And I, I don't know if, if there's really a critical mass of, of congregations still using hymn books to make that possible, mm. but I think that could be really, really useful. Mm. I know the Trinity Psalter hymnal, every time they print it, they, they run out. Uh, so there no. is certainly a market for hymnals, uh, whether, uh, whether they will take that as, we need to get into this market uh, ourselves, I don't know, but yes, would love to see. I mean, the, the Trinity Hymnal is such a, a well-done uh, work for the Church. It is. It, it's really well done. Yes. Well, anything else, uh, Sean, anything to add? 
it's a great time to be in the PCA. I know that sounds mm -hmm. like a sales pitch, but it is. Uh, I also have been encouraged by the last several years. We've had scuffles and we've had kerfuffles and we've had disagreements, but by and large, I think the Lord has been kind. And oh, He's always kind, but I think the, he has been particularly kind to us in the way that it's been settled out in the increasing health and vitality of our denomination. Uh, the cultural headwinds for the time being are, are very much against uh, the Lord's biblically minded church, but the PCA is a great place to be. We've got brothers and sisters all over that are standing lockstep with us, linking arms to stand for truth, to stand for the gospel. And I, I, I see things, not only like what's happening at the general assembly level and how certain uh, controversies are being handled, but I, I'm seeing things, even some of the things we've spoken about today. I, I see young people coming in to the PCA because of the worship that we have because they're drawn to sound expository preaching and they're drawn to strong congregational singing. I'm seeing an increase in psalmody in different quarters, psalm singing in different quarters of the PCA. Uh, I'm seeing a, a groundswell of an interest in the classical hymnody of the Christian church in different quarters of the PCA. Uh, certainly not universal. Um, maybe people think I'm being overly optimistic, but that's what I'm seeing from my from my chair, and I'm encouraged by it, and I'm thankful for it. Yes, we we are certainly seeing the Lord do uh, wondrous things in our own day, as as He did 50 years ago uh, when the PCA uh, was founded. Well, thank you both so much for your time and your wisdom that you shared uh, with with me and with with our with, with both of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ryan. This has been a lot of fun. It has. I it really has enjoyed it. Uh, me too. Thank you. Thanks for joining the conversation on the Westminster Standard, which is the podcast of Jude 3. For additional resources or to make a donation, visit our website, jude3pca.org. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review in the podcast app of your choice if you feel so inclined. And remember, if you share this podcast episode on Twitter and tag us at the WSPod, we will enter you into a drawing to win a copy of Dr. Munson's book. Do come back next week for a special roundtable with some of the PCA founding fathers, Joseph Piper, O. Palmer Robertson, Wayne Herring, and Bebo Elkin as they recollect with us on God's faithfulness to the PCA. That episode will premiere, God willing, on December 4th. I'll talk to you then. Thank you. Thank you.